0: if you're concerned about the reputation of christ if you hide this you only make it worse and 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 by the way you're, you're actually breaking the law as well you need to deal with this the church needs to be a safe refuge at the same time treat the charges seriously especially if it's child abuse again that would be another subject that's different but we need to say it you, you allow investigation to take place. You, you don't assume it's not happening and provide supporting care for the family at large.
1: Hello and welcome to Wisdom for the Heart. Wisdom for the Heart is the Bible teaching ministry of Stephen Davy. Today is our question and answer day, which we do twice a month. It's an opportunity for you, the listening audience, to ask Stephen any question you have regarding the Bible or the Christian faith. Stephen, before we get started today, though, we have a special opportunity for our listening audience to interact with you live Mm -hmm. here in the studio and ask you any question as well.
0: Yeah, we're looking forward uh, to that. Uh, Scott, you're referring to the Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This is something we started five years ago. Every year we have this, and uh, last year we had uh, hundreds of pastors, uh, their wives, deacons, elders. Church leaders come, and we're going to do something a little different. If you're listening right now and you're a church leader and you'd like to come to uh, this conference, uh, we're going to have a special luncheon where I'll be able to meet you, talk with you, eat lunch with you, and answer questions related to the church.
1: The conference is coming up in just two months. So if you want to come, please make your plans. It's October 20 through 22. And in addition to the special lunch that Stephen just mentioned, we also have a special discount code that will give you, our listening audience, a discount on the registration fee for the conference. If you give us a call today at 866-48-BIBLE, we would love to give you that code. So please give us a call before you register you'll find the conference website at shepherds360.org. And again, after you register and use that code, we will send you an invitation to the Wisdom for the Heart Lunch. As I said, though, today is one of those days where Stephen is going to answer your questions over the air. But Stephen, here's our first question for you for today. Uh, My name is
0: Alvin Wilson. I'm from Lowell, Florida. And I have this friend that says that Christians, we, when we say Lord or God, we're saying that incorrectly, that we should call him by his Hebrew-given name, Elohim or Yahweh or Jehovah. But he says that we are wrong in, uh, in, that, in saying that. So I want to know if, if he is right. Thank you.
1: Well, Stephen, what do you think?
0: Well, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is that Jesus called him Father, and uh, that seemed to be an appropriate title. And when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he told them to refer to God as Father. So let's not lose that in the mix, by the way, if, as, as we talk about Elohim and Yahweh and Yeshua and all those things.
1: no, oh, that's a good point. And, but Stephen, Mr. Wilson, he has this friend. And I've heard this before, right, where people would say we need to use these special terms whenever mm-hmm. we're thinking mm-hmm. about God.
0: Well, on one hand we're following a, a strict application uh, as questionably as as it might be to apply it that's strictly of the third commandment to not misuse the name of of uh, the lord that's that's Yahweh in the Hebrew language. Lord is typically kurios in the the Greek translation of the Old Testament and that's used in the New Testament in fact. Keep in mind as well, the apostles in the epistles and in the Gospels never referred to God as Yahweh. Uh, They used kurios, or we translate that, Lord. I think part of the problem is the pietism that came out of Judaism, and it seems to be somewhat popular today, and uh, I'm not a fan of it, but uh, it, it tends to be legalistic you know, you should uh, only use these particular titles or terms for God, or you're being disrespectful. And again, I don't think you are. I, I think the key thing is that you're referring to God in in the language of uh, the worshiper. What are you, you going to call him in your language? Because we're talking about an English translation of a Hebrew or a Greek word. The Jews... Earlier, of course, were very legalistic in this, and I, I'm concerned that we kind of get into this pietism, this mysticism. Well, think in, in terms of the fact that when they would write the name as they're copying manuscripts uh, in ancient days, they, they would wash their hands, they would change their stylus or quill, they would use a, uh, a kosher ink just to write out the name of what we know as in our to our English years as Yahweh the consonants for Yahweh. And by the way if they misspelled the name of God they had a they had a special scalpel where they would cut out that misspelling from the manuscript. They would take that little piece of vellum or papyrus or whatever it might be and put it in a box and then they'd bury it and have a have a a funeral, that's just that's just ridiculous. Okay, that is a that is a pietistic view of letters, that has become legalism. Uh, the name Jesus, there's nothing special about saying Yeshua instead of Jesus. Yeshua is Joshua, and the, the key thing to remember is that you want to honor what his name means. You want to honor the character and the nature. When we believe in his name, we are believing in everything that he represents. We're not sanctifying in some special sense certain consonants and vowels. We don't we don't see the apostles doing it in the New Testament and it's fine for you to do it uh, as well. You can call him a lord. Uh, You can call him God, you can call him Father, if you want to refer to him as El Shaddai or Adonai or Elohim, that's fine. But don't turn his Hebrew names and titles into some kind of incantation, as if it sort of unlocks new power or or new intimacy with God. And that's really what bothers me, Scott, is a lot of people today, they they treat it like, you know, it's going to unlock something special, it's going to, you know, it's going to give you special, intimate, uh, relational power with with God. Uh, that's not true. That's legalism akin to pietism, and we're not going to go there.
1: Stephen, as you were speaking, I had a follow-up question for you. Do you think it's possible that we can become too casual in the way we refer to God? And here's what I mean by that. I was once attending a conference and the person who opened in prayer said "Daddy" instead of "Father" or "God." Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. just I'm just wondering your thoughts. Can can we become too casual? Yeah, I think way- that's a
0: good. I think it's a good point to bring up because that's the other side of the coin, and we want to make sure we give we a balanced response. Uh, and that is that we don't mistreat or treat casually uh, this name. He's not. He's not the man upstairs you know, uh, Daddy is is simply a, a, a literal translation of Abba, Abba Father. Abba would be translated to the English reader today, Daddy or Dad, or it's an affectionate personal term. Now, to my ears, it's a little too casual. I don't do it, but it's not uh, theologically incorrect for someone to say that. Okay. And by the way, just let me add this as well. When you read the letters of the Apostles they have tremendous respect uh you rarely even read the name Jesus by itself it's jesus christ it's the lord jesus it's the lord jesus christ they They want to make sure they magnify the nature of of our our Lord to them in the first century, there were a lot of Jesuses running around the neighborhood that was a very common Name. They were naming them after their hero, Joshua, Yeshua, the Jesus. That was the, the name of the Redeemer, and that was, the, that was a hero of the Old Testament days. So it was common. And they, they kind of added Christos to make sure we're talking about the anointed one, Jesus, the anointed, the Messiah. Again, we don't want to turn this into legalism where you have to say Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ. But as you read the New Testament, watch how they treat him by attaching often to his name uh, his uh, office, his uh, anointing, his his divine nature.
1: Thank you, Stephen. And thank you, Mr. Wilson, for calling in. And thank you for listening to Wisdom for the Heart down there in Florida. We're so glad to have you as a listener and glad that you could call and ask your question today. The number that he used to reach our Bible question line is 910 910- 808 9384. That's a number that we have set up to record your question. It's not a number that we answer, so only use that number if you have a question for Stephen regarding the Bible or the Christian faith. It's 910 808 9384. You can use that number anytime. Keep it nearby where you study or read God's Word. And if you ever have a question, use that number to call. Stephen, Jerry has a question for you about John 3.16. My question is, why does John 3.16, why is the translation say should not perish instead of will not perish? Well, Jerry, thank you so much for calling in. Stephen? Well, he,
0: he asked a good question. The author's writing with a subjunctive mood in mind. What that means, let me just kind of cut to it. What that means is not that something might happen, as though it's possible that it won't happen. What he's trying to say is this is the purpose of God sending his son to earth. This is why. So they should not perish. That's why he came, namely to save souls from perishing. So that subjunctive mood indicates something that is not going to happen, not that it could possibly happen. And for those of you who want to be scholars, You know, and you want the other three moods. It's indicative, optative, and imperative. Now I can hear the snoozing taking place, Scott. Let's go to the next question.
1: Stephen, our next question comes from right here in North Carolina. Hello. I'm Yolanda. I'm calling from Charlotte. My question is, I'm divorced. I left my spouse who was abusive emotionally and physically, so... What does the Bible say about abuse, or does it mention that at all? Thank you. Yolanda, thank you so much for calling. We're very sorry to hear what you've gone through, and we want you to know that you're not alone. There are dozens, maybe even hundreds of listeners, Stephen, who have gone through and faced exactly what Yolanda has faced.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, carefully uh, respond to a very big question. Let's start with the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament teach us about Abuse. Well, according to Old Testament law, and if you've got a pencil and you've wondered, again, on a piece of paper, write down texts like Exodus chapter 21. It outlines a basic teaching of the minimum punishment for physical abuse. It would be a fine, a hefty fine. It would be uh, to care and support the victim during recovery. This, by the way, would be carried out by the court, not the victim. And the maximum penalty for uh, a physical abuse obviously would be capital punishment if a, if a life was lost. Uh, Leviticus 18, Leviticus chapter 20 as well give the death penalty for sexual perversion, which certainly includes abuse, especially within a family unit. Deuteronomy 22 Speaks to a a form of emotional abuse and and even a man's attempt at abandonment. Basically, uh, the story here is if a man decides he no longer loves his wife and accuses her of adultery so that he can go marry somebody else, but it's found out that he has falsely accused her, he has to pay a, a large fine. And then he can never divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever for the rest of their lives. And that keeps a man, by the way, from just flippantly accusing his wife of adultery. Uh, an accusation, by the way, that would have been incredibly devastating to her if she was innocent. And then Malachi 2. Let me just point out one more text, Scott. Malachi 2, verses 13 to 16 This is where God is declaring that he will reject the prayers of a man who abandons his wife. He has no good reason, no biblical reason for abandonment, and he abandons her. And why? Because God created marriage to establish a godly household and continue this line of faithful believers. And and so God essentially says any man abandoning his wife— for reasons not condoned by the rest of Scripture, he can stop praying because God has stopped listening to him.
1: Wow. So it's clear, Stephen, in the Old Testament that there is provision for the protection of those who are the victims of abuse as well as severe punishments for abusers. Mm-hmm. And uh, does anything change when we come to the New Testament?
0: Well, in the New Testament, there are a number of passages. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 is a key passage where the Apostle Paul addresses a sexual perversion in the church. In this particular case, a man is uh, sexually related or involved with his stepmother. And he presents a path for the church to deal with this and also for... Uh, the call to repentance on the part of the man. We're happy to report the man does repent later on, and in 2 Corinthians, he's welcomed back into the fellowship. Let me read this passage because it's it's loaded and, and relates to our topic. In verse 9 and following, Paul says, "'I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world.'" or with the covetous and swindlers, with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, if you're not going to hang around them, you're going to have to leave the world. I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, that is somebody who says he's a Christian, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, don't even eat with such a one. What do I have to do with judging outsiders, that is, unbelievers? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And this opens the door to questions we've asked and answered before on the the subject of church discipline. But the immoral individual is to be dealt with by the church. Certainly someone abusing his spouse, abandoning his spouse for immoral reasons, another woman, is to be dealt with by the church. Ephesians 5 is another text where both wives and husbands are taught key principles. The wife is to respect the authority of her husband to submit to her in Christ in the manner that the church is to submit to Christ. And then the husband is to lay down his life, to lovingly care for his wife, to do everything he can for her, for her benefit as Christ does everything for the benefit of the church that he can. Furthermore, the husband is to love his wife as his own body. And uh, that's a key text, which again, gives the man the responsibility to do do the absolute opposite of abuse. I mean, the man is to lay down his life for his wife. So there can't be anything more offensive to the principle of caring and self-sacrificing for the benefit of the wife than abusing her. Colossians 3 is another key text. Similar instruction, by the way. Husbands uh, are, he adds, to not be embittered or to hate their wives and for the wives to be subject to the husbands, to respect their uh, leadership. And then Titus 2 gives a long description of how older men, older women, younger men, younger women are to treat each other in the church. And let me add this one, and then we'll wrap up this particular part of the discussion, Scott. First Peter 3, and this goes back to the prophet's statement in Malachi, where, where Peter says that women are to live godly, humble lives and honor their husbands. And even the husband that is an unbeliever is to be one without a word so wives don't start preaching you know, to your husbands. Pray for them if they're unbelievers so that they'll be convicted and repent as God wills it. And then he says men are to honor women as fellow heirs. That is of equal value. They may have different roles, but they are of equal value to treat them tenderly and carefully. And if not, if a husband doesn't do that God says the same thing he said in Malachi 2. He says you can stop praying, men. If you're not going to care about your wives, stop praying because God has stopped listening.
1: Stephen, I think it's really helpful then to to put all this together and understand how seriously God takes this topic of abuse. When a man is abusing his wife uh, God has the courts involved in judging him. God mm-hmm. has the church involved in judging him. And even God himself right. is, is personally judging that man.
0: Yeah. Okay, let's move to a practical uh, part of this discussion, even though Yolanda might not have asked it, Scott. This is a huge issue. We as pastors deal with this a lot and have disciplined individuals in our church over the years because of a failure to abide by biblical principles of marriage. But let's give some practical advice, especially for those who are victims, okay? And let's start with this. If if you are a victim of physical abuse, get out. Go to a safe place. I recommend separation. To me, physical abuse is the outward decision, the outward demonstration of an inward heart decision to not consent to be your husband. Paul makes it very clear that if that spouse does not consent to live with you, and we would build into that consent to live with you as they're not going to hit you, they're not going to punch you, they're not going to hurt you. If they do, they're not consenting to live with you as God would prescribe it. So for your own safety, get out, get help, stay with a trustworthy friend. Get trustworthy church leaders uh, involved. And by the way, I'm saying this in light of the fact that the majority of abuse cases happen with women being abused by men. It could be the other way around, uh, it could be a woman abusing uh, a man, and that certainly happens. The church has the right to step in with discipline especially if this couple is attending. This could be that moment of accountability that's definitely needed. However, the church doesn't bear the sword. That is, the church depends upon the government, which in our country we're blessed with. In fact, the laws on our books go back to Scripture. And you'll find the civil courts in great support of the victim of abuse. So go to the authorities. Uh, Get counseling from a biblical a counselor. Uh, This trauma is great. This is dangerous. It's going to take you time to heal, and we don't want you to take this journey alone. Don't accept the excuses you're given or blame yourself, which more than likely the abuser is doing, making you the reason. Now, you are sinful. If you're a victim of abuse, you also are. uh, You you may have contributed in some way, uh, but you haven't done something to the point that defends the abuser or allows them the right to physically harm you.
1: And I'm glad you made that point, Stephen, because even though Yolanda didn't say it, I just wondered by the fact that she even called and asked you if she was struggling with guilt over the fact Mm -hmm. that, you know, she's now divorced this man and left him, and she's wondering, you know, what does the Bible say? And And Stephen, before we wrap up this topic, what advice would you have for maybe those who are not the victims of abuse and maybe not even directly involved, but become aware of it, family members, church leaders? What kind of advice would you have for us on this topic? Yeah,
0: that's a a great point to make. Let's be wise. Let's not immediately dismiss charges uh, of abuse. Uh, Let's not minimize it. I, I, I've heard of pastors and church leaders telling an abused woman, you know, you, you need to work harder, you need to try harder, you need to cook better, you need to, you know, get thinner. I, I've heard all kinds of nonsense. This is this is unwise response. We're talking about physical abuse. Provide a, a safe refuge for that victim, away from it, and out of reach from the abuser. D- don't try to protect, don't try to make excuses, don't don't get involved with the one who's physically abusing another. Now, this is going to be hard, especially if the abuser is your son, especially if if uh, if that abuser is your best friend. Look, if they're innocent, their name's going to be cleared up, and healing can take place. But if they're guilty, you may have very well intervened at, at just the right time to save someone's life. Because physical abuse, my friends, don't treat it like it didn't happen, and as that person's talking to you, dismiss it out of hand. If you're a church leader, don't cover it up. If you're concerned about the reputation of Christ, if you're concerned about the integrity of the gospel, if you hide this, you only make it worse. And, and, and by the way, you're, you're actually breaking the law as well. You need to deal with this. The church needs to be a safe refuge at the same time, the government has proper law that needs to be in play, treat the charges seriously, especially if it's child abuse. Again, that would be another subject that's different, but we need to say it. You, you allow investigation to take place. You, you don't assume it's not happening and provide supporting care for the family at large. In the action of discipline, you're going to work toward reconciliation. You're going to work toward understanding the process. You're going to offer counseling. You're going to offer help. You're not just kicking the guy out Uh, and to the curb. you, You want to see things reconciled. You want to see repentance, and you want to see forgiveness.
1: Thank you, Stephen. And thank you so much, Yolanda, for calling in with your question. We certainly hope that you have a good support system and a good church there in Charlotte. If there is anything else we can do to serve you, please call us back at our office number. And if you're a church leader and would be interested in getting a copy of some of our policies and procedures that we follow at Colonial Baptist Church, we'd be happy to help you as well. At the beginning of this program, we mentioned the Shepherds 360 Conference. And one of the speakers who's coming to that event is an expert in this whole area of the law, and, and how churches can can protect victims and protect their ministries by safeguarding those in their care from abuse in the first place. If you're a pastor, teacher, deacon, Bible study leader, we would love to have you come and join us. It's just two months away, October 20 through 22. Call our office and we will give you a special Wisdom for the Heart discount code. Our number is 866 48 Bible. And by the way, I'll let you in on something that just happened while we were actually speaking with you. Stephen got a text from Erwin Lutzer, the former pastor of Moody Church, and he's agreed to come and join us for that luncheon as well. So Stephen and Erwin Lutzer will be here at the studio for a special Wisdom for the Heart listener luncheon during that conference. Call us for more details. Before we go today, I just want to remind you how thankful we are for your faithful support of this ministry. We pray for our listening audience regularly. We know that you pray for us. And if you'd like to support us and help continue to make this ministry possible, we'd be grateful. We recently received a note from Roseanne in Maryland, enclosed as a small gift toward the furtherance of the gospel to be preached and taught where needed Around the world, and we're so thankful for her gift and for yours as well. You can make a donation on our website, which is wisdomonline.org, or you can call us at the number I provided earlier. I hope that you have a great weekend. When we come back on Monday, Stephen begins a brand new series that's never been aired before. He recently concluded a series through 2nd and 3rd John called Postcards from John. We're going to begin that series on Monday here on Wisdom for the Heart.